pray, Lord, that you'd meet our needs. I'm conscious that some are here and there's a real need for comfort, for strength in the inner person, for a fresh view of you, even, Lord, for another view of eternity and the things long down the road. Father, I pray that they would be comforted. There are others of us, Lord God, and we need conviction. We need truth brought to bear upon our lives because we've been apathetic and cool towards you. We've been lazy and slothful about the things of God. And so, Father, I pray that your word would meet us in our need. Father, I pray that our fellowship here in Westerlo would be rich and real, authentic, genuine, and deep. We ask, Lord, that God the Spirit would move mightily in our midst this day. We ask this in and through the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who loved us first and best. Amen. Jeremy Bentham died in 1832. He willed his estate to the University College Hospital in London with one condition. He stipulated that his dead body be dissected and that his skeleton be reassembled, preserved, and clothed so that he could attend all subsequent board meetings at the hospital. Truth is stranger than fiction, folks. Apparently, for a period of time at least, he was wheeled into the hospital board meetings, and the chairman would announce Jeremy Bentham present but not voting. Now, as bizarre as that sounds, it serves as an apt description of the kind of hollow life that some of us live. Oh, we show up. We're presently, visibly, physically here. But if the truth be known, sometimes the most glorious part of us what they would call in Hebrew the nephesh, or in Greek, suke, our souls, our very feet of emotions, well, sometimes they're strangely distant from the fact that we're here to worship the living Lord. Well, we're here, but not all of us. We're drifting around in other places, wondering about the meal, wondering about our time together this afternoon, wondering about the details of work this week. I want to make the plea, I want to offer you the challenge that life, real life, is more than merely physical. It involves the inner person. It involves, in fact, the best part of us. It's possible that on the outside, people can appear fine while the inner person is starving and struggling. We could be here this morning, present but not amazed, Present but unmoved, present but unfazed, present but unchanged. God seems so strangely distant and unlikely and otherworldly. We've grown to expect little from God, to venture little for God, and in that we find him strangely foreign. The always provocative A.W. Tozer spoke about the dreamy numbness that exists in the life of modern Christians, he says that we struggle this way. Our worship does not affect anything in our everyday lives. 
He is aware of no power, no presence, no spiritual reality. There is simply nothing in his experience corresponding to things which he heard from the pulpit or sang the hymns. And it might well be that you have known a dryness of soul. You're here, but not all of you. Thousands of years ago, God's people languished as a captive nation in Babylon. And God raised up a prophet, a mouthpiece named Ezekiel, who would speak for him to his people. And in this message of Ezekiel 37, he provides us with a message of hope that's almost stunning and unbelievable. The question is, can these dry bones live again? And the resounding answer is, yes, they can. The breath of God, the ruach of God, breathes life into them. There's a, two, there's a two-pronged way to see this. Either believers that have cooled towards the things of God and because of sin are being distracted from the big things, the main things, and the plain things. Or it might well be that you've never been brought to life. It's not a matter of revival. It's a matter of being made new, being recreated. And so with both of those as an emphasis, I want you to think with me of Ezekiel 37. What does the message to 6th century B.C., Jewish exiles, not unlike the passage that we looked at in Jeremiah, what's it mean to me living in August of 2017? That's a great question. It's great because we realize, again, that God doesn't change. The God who sees the deadness, the stillness, the dryness of the ancient followers of his is able to see exactly where we are. It might well be that we're here this morning present but not voting. God does not forget his people. He offers life to the dead. He is in the business of making dead things alive. And if you have felt parched on the inside, dry, and distant from God, Ezekiel 37 has a good word for you. Revival is God coming to the aid of his people, reanimating, re-energizing, restoring, and recommissioning us. So we return to ancient Babylon, and we hear again the words of the prophet Ezekiel. Let me give you three anchor points to marshal your thoughts around as we come to the text. First of all this, in verses 1 to 6, God causes order from disorder. God causes order from disorder. The prophet Ezekiel is giving a visionary experience. He sees a valley very full, the text says, of very dry bones, according to verse 2. You, you get the sense that this, has been, this is a superlative setting. Very full, very dry bones. You can only imagine the arid condition, the parched bones piled high, all kinds of parts jumbled together in a kind of discombobulation. The very image is an image of death. Bleached skulls, rip gauges, femurs, dried out marrow. It's a brittle frailty in and amidst the heat and the sun and the sand, I'm sure. Imagine some westerns if you're looking for a visual prompt to that. Imagine Death Valley or something like that. And then there is this amazing question in verse 3. Son of man, can these bones live? Damn bones, damn bones. Can, can they live? And it's a great question because it's a question that some of us have asked. Can I ever get back to where I was with God? 
I, I was so energetic. I was so thrilled to come together to the house of the Lord and meet with God's people. Can I ever live again? The early vitality that I had when I came to faith and trust in Jesus Christ, can I get back there? Can I be re-energized and reanimated? Ezekiel takes a look around, and it seems like nothing is further from the truth. I mean, this is like the ultimate. This is a This is a cemetery on top of the earth. This is a place of great uncleanness. Ezekiel's reply is not so much an answer as it is a testimony of weakness. He's unsure of himself, but he appears sure of God. He says this, Oh, Lord God, sovereign Lord, you know. I I don't know, but I don't want to say no. But I know that you know. So God is at work here, even in terms of his confused lips. Ezekiel is seeing something so discouraging that though a remedy seems inconceivable, seems almost like a hopeless possibility, he says, Lord, you know. And then in verse 4, there is this word from the Lord, prophesy to these bones, tell them the truth. And I'm wondering if Ezekiel in his mind didn't stop and think, are you kidding me? This is bizarre. I mean, this situation just says it's over. Finite, stick a fork in it, move on, turn the lights off when you leave. It just looks as though it's over. So amazingly, God's word to him is speak, prophesy, declare truth to these bones. Imagine how odd this would have seemed. In this jumbled jungle of bones, God's word is speak truth prophesy. I have a uh, tradition that uh, I've been involved with now for a couple of decades in pastoral ministry. On Easter Sunday, I like to go to graveyards. Now, hold on before you call, folks. And I go amongst the tombstones, and I read some of the captions. Then in walking through the graveyards, and I've already spotted that we're not far from a couple— But then I will say something like this. Get up, Abigail. Wake up, Jane. On your feet, Wayne. Get up, Philip. Now, I've never had anyone get up. But you get the point, don't you? Here we are, called upon by God to speak truth into a world of deadness and dryness. And unless God does something... Everything stays exactly as it is. And yet the glory of the gospel is that there have been times and seasons in our life when God has used us to speak, even through the foolishness of preaching, to speak out the gospel, to offer to people who are living in darkness and death, life and light, and God's spirit has awakened people. We are the product of someone who spoke words of life to us when we, were, when we were 7 or 17 or 27 or 37 or older, and God brought life to us. From ultimate disorder, he brought order. In verse 5, God says that he is saying to these bones, I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. 
In the future, God says, he's going to remake them and reorder them. In verse 6, here's why. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. The word of God will be spoken and life will be the result of it. Folks, do you believe that? Some of you are in situations in, with prodigals in your home or out of your home. You're in situations at work. You're in neighborhoods and your neighbor doesn't like you, and you're trying to speak words of life, and it seems as though it's a valley experience and that life will never come forth. We think even of the Zerbies and their ministry globally, our ministry across the street, their ministry across the world, and you wonder in the back of your mind, Lord, will you do anything? Can you do anything with these words? And God says, I'm going to bring life, and you will know that it's me. Such is the power of God. That's the way God does things. If you're mindful of Genesis 1, you know that in the beginning God spoke and he created ex nihilo from from nothing. And that's the way it is even in terms of our ministry, even in terms of our relationship and walk with him. How amazing that God's word has this reanimating, reviving power in it. God, the great arranger and orderer and designer and architect, is capable of doing this. I know that there's a worry as to whether or not God will continue building his church. I mean, we understand the generational issues of builder and boomer and Gen X and Gen Y and millennials and all that goes with it. Can God really save narcissists and folks who care nothing about him? The response from this text is, oh yeah, them bones can live again. God wants to revive and stir up and bring life. God will do that. Thanks, Tim. I was listening to Lauren Daigle's song, We Cry Out to Dry Bones Come Alive. That's the challenge for us. And what a holy challenge it is. And so in the first few verses, you recognize that God causes order from disorder. You'll notice in verses 7 to 10 that God brings life from death. Take note of verse 7. It's a two-stage marvel here. So I prophesied as I was commanded. This is Ezekiel. And as I prophesied, there was a noise and suddenly a rattling, and the bones came together bone to bone. And you know the hip bone connects with the leg bone and so on, and you get the picture there. The reality here is that there is the rattle of assembly. And then in verse 8, there's sinew and flesh that are added. There's no breath, there's no life in them, but there's bodies there. Now there's eerie mannequins, if you will. But then in verse 9, the second stage is revealed. And it said, also he said to them, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come, from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. Remember the context. This was originally written to Jewish people now captive in Babylon. They had seen their homes destroyed. They probably had watched the temple burn. The very center of their nation, if you will, had been destroyed. They had seen things disintegrate all around them. Now in Babylon, they're wondering, can there ever be life again when there's been so much death? 
As much as people convince themselves that life is purely only physical, we recognize in God's use in verse 9 of the Ruha of God, the Spirit of God is absolutely necessary to life. This scene reminded me, the, the stillness and the quietness and the inanimate element to it, it reminded me of a scene from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe from C.S. Lewis classic book on the Chronicles of Narnia. You remember when the white witch, because of her wand, has turned the Narnian creatures into stone statues? And they sit, he says, in deadly white, in deadly silence. Well, that is until the king shows up, until Aslan, the kingly lion, breathes on his creatures and life creeps back into them. He brings them back from a deadly stillness. Lewis describes the scene, oh, the joyous yelps, the laughter, the hurrahs, the songs, the cheers, the roars, and then they go to join the fight against the white witch. It's a great illustration of the fact that God was going to reassemble, bring back together the nation of Israel, but that God is also capable of reassembling and bringing us back together. In fact, we worship and serve the God who is capable of resurrection, who brings life from dead things, who makes casualties into a living army. God was capable of doing that with these bones, these dry bones. Then he's capable of stirring up our hearts again and reanimating us to the things of God. The people of the new covenant, the church, it is God's desire that he revive us, take us from dry bones so that we might live with new joy and new wonder in him. You ever get tired that you do not feel in your stomach what you know in your head? You ever get tired that sometimes it just seems as though you're going through the motions? Wouldn't it be great if God would stir up our spirits in such a way that we would really live again? Now, we're alive if we're believers. Praise the Lord for that. Our status and our standing is unchanged. It's gloriously unchanged. But the ups and downs of life that sometimes knock from us what is so necessary, the challenge is that we would enjoy, really enjoy, being as children. You ever get tired of the doldrums? Does the valley wear on you? Do you feel at times parched and hollow? Well, the great joy is to realize that in this prophecy from ancient Israel, we have a word from the Most High God, and it's that he can put breath back in us, that we can live, really live again. You remember George Bailey? I want to live again. And that might be the heart cry for a number of us. I want to live again. I was driving one time outside of Newton, New Jersey, where I was serving, and I was amazed to see that there were ducks swimming in a puddle. And I don't know if they couldn't see it or didn't know it, but not far from there was a lake. And I'm thinking to myself, you guys got to move on, all right? You're doing this puddle thing. Do you know what's only 50 yards away? There's a lake over there. And maybe that's expressive of your relationship. You're kind of going around in a puddle, He's got a lake for you. The reality is that God is going to bring life into this nation. He's going to make casualties a living army again. 
So we recognize that God brings order from disorder and he brings life from death. Thirdly and finally, God restores awareness from ignorance. God restores awareness from ignorance. In verse 11, he says, Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. The call was to prophesy to them. And in verse 13, it says this, Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I'm going to bring you life. I'm going to bring you home. I'm going to reassemble you. There's going to be vitality. You feel so parched, but that's not going to be the final picture. God knew how desperate the nation of Israel felt. They had hung their harps on the willow trees to mourn. He knew that they thought that their sin was unpardonable or unforgivable and unredeemable, but it wasn't. Imagine if you were an ancient Israelite and you had entered the world-class city of Babylon. You would have come probably through the magnificent Ishtar Gate and shuffled down the processional way. You were, in fact, a defeated foe. You were a prize of war. You would be walking, however, interestingly, on limestone slabs about three and a half foot square. And on the beveled edge, as you made your way into this new place of residence, literally as a captive, there was a phrase. It said, to the honor of Marduk, to the honor of Marduk. And as you walked, if you looked down, that's what you would see, to the honor of Marduk, to the honor of Marduk. You wonder if they ever thought, am I ever, ever, ever going home? Is this the end of the story? And yet the glory is, in this message, God tells Ezekiel to tell God's people that he brings awareness from ignorance, that he will, in fact, prove to them again that he is the Lord and that he's ultimately gloriously capable. In that hymn that we sometimes sing, Fairest Lord Jesus, it says this, he makes the woeful heart to sing. God is capable of taking the trials and traumas of our lives and causing us to sing again, to cheer and affirm him. Though we find ourselves as exiles in the land of Marduk, to recognize again that he's going to take us home and that he takes us through. God wants to revive us to the place where we recognize and we are aware of his presence not merely about him adjusting our feelings. People say, well, how are you feeling today? I'm not sure that's the best statement to make to a believer. Don't ask me how I feel today. Ask me what I know. Ask me what I know to be true of Jesus Christ, who took my place on the cross of Calvary. Ask me about the new life that he's given to me and the people of his church and the glory that ensues as they live out the life of faith on a broken planet. Revival is connected with the revelation of God. Don't depreciate his word. Revival is impossible without God. It is his work. Revival becomes a holy delight. Can these bones live? The response is, you better believe they can live. That's what God does. He puts his spirit inside of us. He breathes on us. And things that were entrapped and imprisoned begin to live and sing again.
I close with this. I have, I have long been a student of revivals. I've been fascinated with them. The first and second great awakening in New England, the revivals of Edwards and Whitfield and the Wesleys and Spurgeon and Moody and Billy Sunday and others that God has used and God has prospered. Revivals in places like northern China and South Africa and Ireland and even places like northern New Brunswick and Wheaton, Illinois. Back in 2005, we as a church celebrated the 100th anniversary of a stunning revival that took place in Wales. Let me give you just a few details to encourage your heart this morning. In the spring of 1904, a young Welshman by the name of Evan Roberts began praying during the early morning hours. By November, a powerful movement was spreading throughout Wales. It was, it was at this point that a young believer, interestingly, a young believer, named Flory Evans, just a little girl, stood up in a church service and in a trembling voice during testimony time simply said this, I love Jesus with all my heart. God used that testimony to melt the hearts of the listeners in that service. The the revival fires burned and thousands were broken and revived. Christians got right with God and unbelievers got saved. Entire congregations were on their knees in prayer. The London Times reported some of the changes. In Swansea, people who had left their parents in the workhouse for the poor came to take them out. Crime was so low that the police formed quartets to minister in local churches. Wouldn't that be great? Churches had unusual power and purity. Confession and singing and prayer reigned in places of worship. There was not a single case of drunkenness in the petty courts of Swansea. The horses in the mines had to learn a different language because the miners swore so violently at them they did not understand what they were saying. The Bible Society saw a threefold increase in the demand for Bibles. What a wonder. Don't you long for God, through the prophecy of his word, to bring new life to dry bones. As we worship our work, work at our play, and play at our worship, we ask ourselves, can God revive us? And the response from Ezekiel 37 is, absolutely he can. God comes to the aid of his church when we're broken and dissatisfied with the way things are. The call of God upon our lives is that his spirit breathes out into us life so that we would know that he's the Lord, he's spoken, and has performed it. God is gloriously capable, folks, of bringing order from confusion, bringing life from death, and of bringing a new awareness where there had been ignorance. We're going to sing, Lord, revive us again. Father, thank you for the time you've given to us to be together. Thank you for your word to our hearts. And Father, from this ancient text, we pray that you would sing it deep into our hearts. Father, for those that are here and their struggle is to believe, they're not sure who they are and why they're here and where they're going and what life is about. I pray that this morning you would breathe life into their bones. Father, there, there is sin and there is brokenness and there is dysfunction. And so, Father, I pray that you breathe life. Father, for believers that are here have been discouraged 
because for some time now they have not sensed a closeness and a holy delight. Father, they, they have your word, but Father, they need breath. They need your breath. And so, Father, I would pray for that. I would ask, Lord God, that you revive me, that you'd stir up my heart, that it might be full of holy affections for you and for this great news. And I pray, Lord, that you'd work in the midst of your people. And we'll be careful to give you all the praise and glory and honor. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.